0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ every weekday morning from our studio on the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is going to be a message called Convinced About the Bible. It's sort of building on my last couple of weeks, if you've been able to hear those, I've been going through the purpose of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible. And this is a study in the trustworthiness of the Bible. And just like all my uh, Monday sessions that you're going to hear in and through the Daily Thunder podcast, or whether you're getting this online, you're going to notice that there's always three more episodes that are associated with that one that won't be released in the podcast. You need to go to ellislie.com forward slash daily to get them. But this is going to be the same, where I'm going to start with one session here called Convinced About the Bible, and then I'm going to have three more that will take it deeper. And I highly encourage you to dig into those. I think they will be very encouraging for you, especially if this is an issue that is sensitive for you, or you just want to be just sort of bolstered stronger in your confidence in the text of Scripture. So let's dig into this, guys. Uh, The way I've oftentimes described the text of Scripture is as a treasure map. And a treasure map is extremely valuable in and of itself. But why is it valuable? It's because it has the value of the treasure. Why? Because it's the only thing that leads you there. And if you lose the map, you lose the treasure. The text of scripture, the Bible, is like that. In and of itself, it is not the treasure. I know this sounds terrible. sounds like I might be denigrating the scriptures. I'm not. But in and of itself, it's not the treasure, but it is the one thing that shows us the treasure. What is the treasure? It's Jesus. You see, Jesus and his cross work is the point of it all. However, if you lose the text, you're going to lose the man of Scripture, Jesus, and you're going to lose the action of Scripture, the cross, which is why we preserve the integrity of the text with such intensity, because it is the basis, it is the the lead in, it is the ramp into the fullness of who God is revealed in Jesus Christ. So the importance of the map, it's the one thing that leads us to the X that marks a spot. So on a map, as you guys know, you know, you have the, you're going to go 10 feet this way, across a little stream here, go up a hill. That's the way the scriptures are. And it's leading us somewhere. Where's it leading us to the X that marks a spot. Now you take that X and you turn it sideways. What do you get? I know sort of corny maybe, but you get a cross You get the cross that marks the spot. You get the man, Jesus, and what he did for us. As Paul says, look, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus and him crucified. Paul knew more, but he knows that this was the whole point. The whole point of this book was to lead us to the man and what that man did. If you have the book, but you miss Jesus, Pharisees did exactly what I just described. They crucified the man, And they're the ones, ultimately, that are not going to be able to participate in the benefit and the virtue of what he did. They rejected him. That doesn't make any sense. They have the text, but they're going to miss what it's about. It's very common. You see, the reason we've been given this text is to reveal to us that Jesus and what Jesus did. So that's why the map is so important. So we're going to go through what I call the 10 simple proofs. I hinted at this last week. And... And if you went through my extended study last week, you're going to notice that I even went through the 10 simple proofs. I named them, but I didn't go into them at any depth. At least I was trying to restrain myself from doing And I gave a few uh, spoiler alerts uh, in that, but uh, I'm going to start walking through this and this whole collection today, these four sessions I'm going to go through are going to go through all 10. So in the first one, I think I'm going through two of these And so you'll get an introduction, sort of a wedding of the appetite, but if you'd like to take them deeper, I highly encourage you to go through all four of the sessions. So the 10 simple proofs, even a child can understand these. Proof number one, this book is supernaturally built. Let's listen to Sir Walter Scott, the great Scottish novelist and poet. This is what he said. The most learned, acute, and diligent student cannot, in the longest life, obtain an entire knowledge of this one volume. Speaking of scripture... The most deeply he works the mind, the richer and more abundant he finds the ore. New light continually beams from this source of heavenly knowledge to direct the conduct and illustrate the work of God and the ways of men. And he will at last leave the world confessing that the more he studied the scriptures, the fuller conviction he had of his own ignorance and of their inestimable value. Boy, do I understand that. This book is supernatural in every regard. The way it is put together is remarkable. And the book speaks to us. The more you study it, the more layers you begin to recognize. You can read through it and you see things, truths and they change your life. Read through it again and you see things deeper. Whoa, was that there the whole time? Yeah, that was there. You read it again, you find something deeper. I call them layers. And it's like, boy, every time you go down a layer, you think how many layers are in this? I don't know. I don't know that anyone has ever trolled the depths of it. The whole thing is master crafted. I have a lot of messages that go into this very particular thing, but let it suffice to say, so that we can keep these messages short and, and taught, that it's supernatural. The Bible's pedigree is astounding. It's written over a 1,400-year span, over 40 generations. That's remarkable. It's written by over 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, etc. Here, who were its writers? Here's only a mere sampling. Moses, a political leader, trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter, a fisherman. Amos, a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah, a cupbearer. Daniel, a prime minister. Luke was a doctor, Solomon a king, Matthew a tax collector, and Paul a rabbi. Where was it written? Again, this is only a small sampling. Moses in the wilderness, Jeremiah in a dungeon, Daniel on a hillside and in a palace, Paul inside a prison walls, Luke while traveling, John on the Isle of Patmos, others in the rigors of a military campaign. Now, you were to take all of that, over 40 generations, over 40 writers, different walks of life, and try and coordinate all of those people together to say one thing. This book Totally meshes. Jesus is going to fulfill all that is said by all these writers over all this 1400 year period. How in the world could that work? Well, like I said, it's supernatural. It is supernaturally constructed. So a lot of people would say, well, is this the work of an anthologist, like a a group, maybe one guy, or maybe a cluster of gray headed men that are going to take all of these works and sort of put them together? You know, we don't want that one, we want this one. How did this book come together? Here's what F.F. Bruce says, Any part of the human body can only be properly explained in reference to the whole body. And any part of the Bible can only be properly explained in reference to the whole Bible. The Bible at first sight appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish. If we inquire into the circumstances under which the various biblical documents were written, we find that they were written at intervals over a space of nearly 1,400 years. The writers wrote in various lands, from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east. The writers themselves were a heterogeneous number of people, not only separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, but belonging to the most diverse walks of life. In their ranks, we have kings, herdsmen, soldiers, legislatures, fishermen, statesmen, courtiers, priests, and prophets, a tent-making rabbi, and a Gentile physician not to speak of the others of whom we know nothing apart from the writings they have left us. F.F. Roos continues, the writings themselves belong to a great variety of literary types. They include history, law, civil, criminal, ethical, ritual, and sanitary, religious poetry, didactic treaties, lyric poetry, parable and allegory, biography, personal correspondence, personal memoirs, and diaries, in addition to the distinctly, distinctively biblical types of prophecy and apocalyptic. For all that, the Bible is not simply an anthology. There is a unity which binds the whole together. An anthology is compiled by an anthologist, but no anthologist compiled the Bible. The Bible is built by God. The Bible is put together by God. Anyone who studies its history, anyone who studies its its content is going to be marveling At what it contains, and to think that it was over forty writers, over forty generations—that's extraordinary. But all these different walks of life, how could they coordinate so perfectly to reveal one thing, Jesus? It's sixty-six books, all saying the same thing. Remarkable. Proof number two: it performs what it promises. When the Bible says it, it does it. That's pretty incredible. That's supernatural. So approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the Bible, roughly 2,000 of which already have been fulfilled to the letter with no errors. The remaining 500 point to the future and will still be certainly fulfilled. So let's look at the odds of this. For this book to present 2,000 future events and have them occur by chance and without error is statistically inconceivable conservatively, if you gave each event a lenient chance of 1 in 10, which is preposterous that we would only make it a 1 in 10 chance, but say we did, the odds of all that has transpired over these past thousands of years in proving the biblical prophecy accurate would be less than 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. That is a one with 2,000 zeros written after it. So not likely, right? In other words, the odds are in the classification of impossible. With man, it is impossible. This isn't a work of man. This is a work of God. With God, all things are possible. John fourteen twenty nine. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it come to pass, you might believe. This is Jesus talking at the Last Supper to his disciples. You see, he's going to tell them something before it happens, so that when it does happen, there would be a response inside of them. And what is that response? They would believe. You see, we are called to believe, but what we're believing is something stout and solid. You see, God is going to speak, and then he's going to do. All throughout the Bible, you're going to see it. In this situation, he's going to say, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed, and in three days, I'm going to rise again. I'm telling you this before it happens, so that when it does happen, you're going to know. I am God in the flesh. I have come to save you. I am that Messiah you were looking for, right? Joshua 23, 14. Listen to Joshua which ironically is the same name for Jesus, right? But listen to the the way he expresses this. It's it's profound. And behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. He's dying. And you know in all your hearts and in in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing has failed thereof. And what's interesting is all these years later, I could say the same thing about the same God and the same words that he spoke. That's remarkable. All throughout history, he has never failed to perform exactly what he promises. So we have something that I go through oftentimes at Ellerslie. It's called the Messiah test, which I'm not going to go through right now, but where I go through all the prophecies of the Old Testament and then match them up with Jesus. It is remarkable. If you want to go and dig up that message, it's called Canon, C-A-N-O-N, and it's worthy of a listen. It is deeply impacting. But I'll give you some of the, you know, the essence of it. Isaiah 7:14, 7, 750 years before Jesus Christ. 750 years before Jesus Christ. This is said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Micah 5.2, 750 years before Jesus Christ. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou art little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. A virgin girl will give birth in what town? Bethlehem. This is 750 years before it happened, guys. Remember what Jesus said at the last supper? I tell you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you would believe. Psalm 22, okay, this has to be one of my favorite passages, because of what it says. First of all, this is a thousand years before Jesus Christ. A thousand years. Listen to this. It's going to describe intimately and in granular detail the cross of Jesus. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare at me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. What I would like to say is any questions. Do you see the supernatural nature of this book right there? A thousand years before it happens, God is going to speak in and through David, and he's going to write in vivid granular detail the specifics of a form of death that didn't even exist up to that point. Remarkable. Here's another amazing illustration of this. Cyrus the King. The prophet Isaiah foretold that a conqueror named Cyrus would destroy seemingly impregnable Babylon and subdue Egypt along with most of the rest of the known world. This same man, said Isaiah, would decide to let the Jewish exiles in his territory go free without any payment of ransom. So we have multiple statements. You see Isaiah 44:28, 28, 45, 1, and 45, 13. We even have his name, Isaiah made this prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was born, 180 years before Cyrus performed any of these feats, and he did eventually perform them all. And 80 years before the Jews were taken into exile. Amazing. Here's another one. Josiah the king. One unnamed prophet of God declares that a future king of Judah named Josiah, it says his name in the text of scripture, would take the bones of all the occultic priests, priests of the high places of Israel's King Jeroboam and burn them on Jeroboam's altar. So that's in 1 Kings 13:2 and 2 Kings 23, 15 through 18. This event occurred approximately 300 years after it was foretold. Remember Jesus at the Last Supper? I tell you before it happens so that when it does happen, you would believe. So I'd say that maybe that's what we all should do too. God has laid out a pattern for how our faith works. You see, there is something he wants to do. He wants to convince us. You know that the old word for being convicted was being convinced. We use the term being convicted by the Holy Spirit, but the old school Christians used to say being convinced by the Holy Spirit. It's basically the same thing. But the word convinced means something to us in the English language that we can really use in this illustration. That is, that means I know that it's true. I don't doubt that. The Holy Spirit convinces us. When we study the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, who carried along the original writers, uh, actually works with us as we read, to convince us of its truthfulness. I didn't witness Jesus die on the cross 2000 years ago. I didn't witness him resurrect, but I believe it. Why? I'm convinced. How am I convinced? I'm convinced by the Holy Spirit. I believe that what the text of scripture says about this man of scripture, Jesus, and what he did on that cross is true. And I believe the text of scripture is a supernatural book and I believe It is trustworthy. God's blessings. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is streamed daily, Monday through Friday, from our studio in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekend church service is delivered live and streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Note that our live weekday in-person version of Daily Thunder is scheduled to resume this upcoming June in conjunction with our training season. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.